listening to the Psych Central Podcast, where guest experts in the field of psychology and mental health share thought-provoking information using plain, everyday language. Here's your host, Gabe Howard. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Podcast. Calling into the show today, we have Alex Bruis and Amber Woodich, both anthropologists and president's professors at Arizona State University, where Alex founded and Amber now directs the Center for Global Health. Their most recent book together is Lazy, Crazy, and Disgusting, Stigma and the Undoing of Global Health. Alex and Amber, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I am really excited to be here because your work focuses on three issues of global health efforts, sanitation or disgusting, obesity, which is lazy, and my personal favorite, mental illness, which is crazy. And trying to tie those things together so well, it's it's difficult, right? But there's stigma everywhere. And mental illness is just like any other aspect of health when it comes to being stigmatized in this manner. It is. And Mental health is one of the stigmatizing phenomenons that we understand best, and so it really helps us think about other problems that are less well understood. One of the things that's become fascinating to me since I started doing this show and started working in patient advocacy is when I first got started, I thought that only, hard stop, only mental illness was stigmatized. That if you had any other illness or condition or malady, you were treated with caring and respect and nobody was judgmental. And that the only reason people were mean to me because of my bipolar diagnosis is because people didn't like the mentally ill. And as I started to get more and more involved and and meeting great people like the two of you, I realized that, oh my, it seems like any health condition is stigmatized. Yeah, so we've looked at a lot of different aspects of stigma, but what seems to be the case is that conditions that are chronic and don't have an easy cure tend to be those that are a focus of stigma because those labels can attach and kind of stay attached. And part of the stigma is the disease itself isn't easily and completely treatable in the way that, you know, for example, a cold is self-limiting. So having a cold is not going to be nearly as stigmatized as having leprosy or um, other conditions that have kind of crept in as becoming very stigmatized over time. Often it's conditions that are associated with some fear and often that fear comes from not knowing exactly what the cause is or exactly how to fix it. Those tend to be the conditions that become stigmatized. When we're talking about stigma, let's define the word. What exactly is stigma? Well, stigma in relation to health is when the condition that you have comes to define your identity in a negative way because of the judgments that are placed on that. And the thing that's particular about stigma is it's also then used as a way to push people down and out, to marginalize them, to deny them. So stigma is the the tray or the disease plus the negative judgment plus the social rejection that comes from that. In many ways, that just sounds like a lot like discrimination. How does stigma differ from discrimination? So one way that stigma becomes manifest is as discrimination. So discrimination is one type of stigma. It's stigma where people act on those negative judgments to treat someone worse than they would otherwise, uh, whether it's denying them employment, giving them worse health care. But the difference is, is that stigma can take many forms. So while discrimination is essentially enacted stigma, 
people can feel stigma and be affected by it without someone overtly acting on a negative judgment. I think that we can all agree that whether it's stigma or discrimination, it, it's really treating people less than they are. It's looking at them and deciding, hey, you're not as good as other people. Is that a fair sort of analogy or assessment of stigma? Yes, it's a process of removing people's humanity, of a process of devaluing them as social beings. So that's exactly what it is. Obviously, when we're talking about health issues, it's hard enough to be sick, right? Like that in and of itself is difficult. And being stigmatized, that in and of itself is difficult. And when you put the two together, this just is problematic. And that kind of leads me to my next question. How does this stigma undermine mental health treatment? There are so many ways that stigma undermines mental health treatment. One important thing to understand is that stigma can actually cause mental ill health. So people who are repeatedly um, mistreated or pushed out or down in society can develop anxiety, they can develop depression. So that's right off the bat. In addition to that, for many people, the experience of being stigmatized by a mental health care provider is actually worse than dealing with the symptoms of mental health. So they would rather continue untreated than actually seeking out care from a provider. Beyond that, we know that stigma depresses investment in mental health research and treatment. So the quality of care available to people is less because of stigma. We know that it can undermine the efficacy of treatment. So people may not receive care that's as good as as they might if they didn't have a stigmatized condition. And then a really important thing for people is that if they have a stigmatized mental health condition, they might receive less social support from people around them, and that can really impede their improvement. One of the things that's fascinating to me about being a mental health advocate is the idea that it only happens to a certain type of person. You had a bad upbringing, your parents were bad, a lot of stuff visits, your mother didn't love you enough, or there's just so much misinformation that floats around. But a lot of people believe these things are true. Does the amount of stigma of mental health conditions contribute to people believing some of these far-fetched myths about mental illness and mental health issues? So I think it's almost the inverse. I think that people's beliefs about these types of causes of illness that tend to drive stigma. So if people believe that diseases are because the family fails or the person fails, they're more likely to stigmatize that condition. So a good example of that uh, that we're seeing now is rising stigma against obesity, is that when people believe that people gain a lot of weight because of moral failings, like, you know, for example, overweight children, that parents are poor parents, then that actually tends to elevate and get in place more stigma towards the condition. But an essential part of stigmatization is othering and is a way of making a distinction between myself and other people who have this condition, right? And so this idea that the source of the stigmatized condition is different is something that not everyone experiences as part of this othering process as well. One of the things that was fascinating to me in your book, Lazy, Crazy, and Disgusting, is about how health professionals might unwittingly create additional stigma through their efforts to help people. Can you give us an example and talk about that for a moment? Because I, I think that many people only see health professionals as, as good and helpful. It's interesting that they can have any negative consequence in the way that they're working. So I, I just found that utterly fascinating. 
A good example we have in our book of this is where health professionals who on the whole are just really motivated by the desire to do good in their jobs. So we don't want to give the impression that the health profession is full of people who are actively stigmatizing purposefully. Of course not. It's like an unintended consequence, right? Yeah. So in the book, we go through the case of sanitation interventions that actually use stigma as a way to trigger behavior change. So by making certain sanitation behaviors like outdoor defecation disgusting and stigmatized, they're working hard to push people to change sanitation behavior in ways that meet public health goals, right? Which is better sanitation, better health, less infectious disease. So the goal itself is good, but in doing that, what it seems they're doing that we see as anthropologists is that on the ground, they're actually also creating new pockets of stigma that can be very damaging for the people that they focus on with, you know, when it comes to sanitation interventions or the people that can't afford to build toilets, can't afford to buy soap, and the other things now that they're expected to have as a result of the intervention. So I think that's one that's one really good example of how the very best intentions can derail if people don't understand how stigma really works on the ground. And thinking about mental health specifically, I do think it's important to point to mental health care professionals as one of the groups of care providers that really sincerely understands how damaging stigma can be and makes an enormous effort to destigmatize care. But there are certain variants of mental health treatment where we see the persistent negative impacts of stigma. And one good example is an opiate treatment. So for people who have opiate addictions, we know that there is often an inordinate emphasis placed on their own efforts. And if they relapse, quite often they are blamed and stigmatized as a result, not just by their social network, but also even by their care providers. And we know that that form of treatment is not consistent with the best outcomes for opiate treatment. And this is so much the case that sometimes people with opiate addictions are not counseled to consider medication. They're just told that they need to make more of an effort in certain treatment programs. And so I think that's a really good example of the ways that stigma can be damaging in mental health treatment. And another example that's quite different is the observation that mental health treatment professionals are often stigmatized within the profession because they are seen as working with patients that are are less desirable, that are less easy to treat. So you see this with a lot of clinicians that choose to work with stigmatized conditions is that they themselves become devalued within the profession. We're going to step away for a minute and then we'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face session. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central. And we're back discussing mental health stigma with professors Alex Brewis and Amber Woodich. This is slightly off topic, but to your point, one of the tropes that you hear about often is that mental health professionals are just as crazy as their patients. They got into it because they wanted to diagnose themselves, or they got into it because they wanted to diagnose a family member, whereas this doesn't exist 
elsewhere. An oncologist isn't seen as somebody who has cancer or knows somebody with cancer. They're just somebody who went into a specialty for any number of reasons. Is this something that you're seeing in your work as well, that just all mental health professionals are stigmatized? That isn't something we specifically investigated in our own work, although we do see in the literature indications of the stigmatization of some mental health professionals. And I think that the process that you've described is a really good example of how these negative judgments accrue to people who are in stigmatized social positions. I can certainly see where if somebody tells you, hey, you need to see a mental health professional and you're thinking to pop culture and you're thinking to all of these, uh, just everything that we've seen about mental health professionals in, in the popular media, in movies, even in books, we may think, oh yeah, they're just crazy people that are you know pushing pills or, or they just want to talk about it and that doesn't work and, and they're nuts. It's a really easy way to dismiss something that you probably already don't want to do. And I say that you don't want to do it, not because it's mental health, but because who wants to go to the doctor? And that's sort of what you're talking about with stigma, right? It's this way to easily dismiss something rather than really think about it and consider its merits. So one of the big challenges with stigma is, and probably the most damaging form is self-stigma, where you take on the label and you begin to believe it yourself. So if you think that you reflect those negative values that have been placed on the condition because you have it. That's obviously going to be wanting a diagnosis in the first place or wanting to seek treatment because the very act of doing that puts you into that category that you have already agreed is a devalued category. That's why self-stigma is by far the most damaging form of stigma that there is. That's something that I hadn't even thought about. But you're right, because who wants to be fill in the the blank. It's scary enough living with the illness, but admitting all of these things to yourself and then, as you mentioned earlier, admitting this to others, this can be very, very difficult. Thank thank you so much for saying that. I, I really, really appreciate it. It is true that it can be incredibly difficult to come to the realization that you have a stigmatized condition and that by seeking treatment, you may need to make that more public. But one of the things that Alex and I found in our research and really believe is that of all the ways that people have tried to destigmatize certain health conditions, probably the most powerful is that when people with the condition become activists and speak to society not only about the ways that the stigma is impacting them, but also the way that we should change our society, that is a really incredibly heroic act and has amazing efficacy. So that's the, the flip side, that once people get past self-stigma and move into a space of reaching out to others to help them, it can really transform the way that they impact the world positively. I could not agree with you more. As somebody who lives with mental illness, I I believe that speaking about it openly really, really helps people. And the amount of support and encouragement that I've been given is its own form of, uh, I I don't know, it feels like a big hug whenever I get the nice emails. And and that helps me maintain my my mental health issues as well. So thank you. I I really appreciate that. And I I hope anybody listening will either speak out themselves or encourage their friends and family and loved ones to speak out as well. That's true. And this podcast is a great example of a way that you're impacting the very broad discourse around these issues and really helping a lot of people. Thank you. Thank you. One of the key points of your book is that mental conditions like depression might themselves be created or worsened by stigma. We, we tend to think of stigma as something that happens after the diagnosis. We, we don't think of it as something that causes a diagnosis. And 
The example that fascinated me the most that you give is how stigma around the neighborhood where you live could worsen your depression. And there was a study on this, if I'm not mistaken. Can you talk about that for a moment? Absolutely. We did a study a few years ago, and to understand it, I think it's helpful to have a little bit of background about Phoenix. So Phoenix, like many large cities in the U.S., has a section that has a very long history of racism and discrimination. And so people were forced to live in this neighborhood. It had inferior services. It has a history going back at least 100 years. And so to this day, this neighborhood carries the stain of stigmatized place. There are other neighborhoods in our city that have similar statistics in terms of poverty or infrastructure or crime. They're really no different than this neighborhood, but they don't carry that same stigmatized identity. So we conducted interviews with people in the stigmatized neighborhood and a similar neighborhood that was not stigmatized and found that people living in the stigmatized neighborhood had worse mental health scores than people in a similar neighborhood that was not stigmatized. And so we concluded that just living in a place that had this stained identity could negatively impact people's mental health. And there are plenty of other people who come at this question using different methods or different ways that have come to similar conclusions. And we know that living with a stigmatized condition and living in a stigmatized situation, all of these things increase the stress that someone is experiencing and enduring very stressful situations can increase the likelihood people have symptoms of anxiety and depression. And I really think that logically that makes sense. If every day you wake up and somebody is telling you that you're bad because of the home that you live in or who your parents are or the neighborhood or the area or your job, that's going to have an impact, right? We all know that positivity has an impact. If you're well-loved and well-supported, you tend to think more positively, have better mental health, be more stable. So the reverse would have to be true, right? If you're constantly told that you're bad, you're going to start to feel bad. That's exactly right. And I think it's important to note that because we live in a society where it's very easy for people to, for example, have a lot of medical bills and end up bankrupt or being evicted from their homes, the conditions that produce extreme stress and negative mental health outcomes can really happen to any of us. And they're different in every social setting. So for example, I worked for several years in small island Micronesia on issues of infertility. And there it was very, very important to couples to have children, to continue family tradition for inheritance. And you would see that the most distressing, the most depressing social condition that people could have there above all others was being unable to have children. So it's very contextual in terms of what is depressing for people around stigma tends to be focused on what are the things that society values most. So in some ways, when you look at the pattern of stigma, you actually also see the pattern of stigma and the pattern of depression that comes with that. It really, actually, you can see what society values. So from the perspective of mental health, mental health is going to be most challenging in this way when the values that people are aspiring to are things like self-control and some of these other things that are associated with good mental health. I can't thank you both enough for being here. We're almost out of time, but I have one question that I want to ask about your university work. 
Because one of the things that we hear about so often is that young people are struggling with mental health issues. And you're both professors. You're at one of the largest public universities in the United States. You teach and you mentor a lot of undergraduates. Can you discuss why mental health issues are so prominent on campuses and maybe a little bit about what can be done to assist? Absolutely. Well, if you think about the experience that students in universities today are having, I think it's pretty obvious to everyone why they are experiencing a lot of stress. And many of them have elevated experiences of anxiety and depression. So many of them are living away from home. So they're experiencing a rupture in their social support system. Quite often, they're taking on debt or they're working multiple jobs. So not only do they have financial stresses, but they have very little time to rest. They are probably not participating in healthy eating and exercise the way that they did when they lived at home with their families. And all of these things can contribute to symptoms of anxiety and depression. So when I teach undergraduates fairly early in the class, I usually put up on the board a set of mental health screeners and let them know what the symptoms of increased likelihood of anxiety and depression are and give them a little lecture about how common and normal it is for people to experience anxiety and depression in college and let them know that we have free resources and that everybody should establish with a mental health care provider if they are experiencing some of the symptoms of anxiety and depression. So I feel like that's important because, first of all, they may not have been encouraged to seek mental health care in the past. It might be the first time someone's telling them that it's okay to do that. Also, by opening up a discussion in the class, the fact is the rates are very high. Almost always a handful of students will say, yes, I'm experiencing this. Yes, I went to our mental health clinic. This is what it was like. And so it opens up a conversation and really changes people's experience from feeling like it's something they're suffering alone to a shared experience that they can all address and move forward with together. Alex and Amber, thank you so much for all the work that you do. Thank you for being here. How can our listeners find you? We are both on social media in various ways. So we blog at Psychology Today. Our blog's called Diagnosis Human. And we both have websites, alexbrewis.org and amberwoodage.org. And we're on Twitter. We are on Twitter. You're more on Twitter than I am. <laughs> so A Brewis underscore Alex on Twitter. Wonderful. And where can folks get your book? Probably the easiest thing is Amazon.com. And our publisher is John Hopkins University Press. And if you come to our website, there's a discount code on there for purchasing books through Johns Hopkins directly. Wonderful. Thank you again so much for being here. And listen up, everybody. Here's what I need you to do wherever you downloaded this podcast. Please use your words and tell people why you liked it. Don't be afraid to share us on social media, email us about, or, you know, print us out on a little placard and walk up and down your street and say, hey, the Psych Central podcast is awesome. And remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere, simply by visiting betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. We will see everybody next week. You've been listening to the Psych Central Podcast. Want your audience to be wowed at your next event? Feature an appearance and live recording of the Psych Central Podcast right from your stage. For more details or to book an event, please email us at show at psychcentral.com. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. 
Psych Central is the Internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website run by mental health professionals. Overseen by Dr. John Grohall, Psych Central offers trusted resources and quizzes to help answer your questions about mental health, personality, psychotherapy, and more. Please visit us today at psychcentral.com. To learn more about our host, Gabe Howard, please visit his website at gabehoward.com. Thank you for listening, and please share with your friends, family, and followers. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.